Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We've got to get to Steen Jakobsen this morning, Saxo Bank CIO, waiting patiently. Steen, I'll just kick things off. Your take on the last couple of days in this market, please. I think it's super interesting and I think it plays into the bigger narrative that's in place that we have a social revolution going on between the haves and the have-nots in the words of the people who play the stock market, the, uh, the Wall Street suits and, and, and the retailers. We have the fact, a Fed that continues to play a game where they ignore facts. I guess uh, Paul's next statement would be that the world is flat or that gravity is something that was invented uh, in terms of fake news. Uh, and finally, I think most, most importantly, we have the fact that you know, Fed needs to stand up one day soon together with the Treasury Secretary that is incoming and realize that the financial repression that goes on today creates a market which is in its nature is a one-size bet with the market at all times. So you have created by virtue of this extended policy and a look into the future of even more extension of the same policy tool with the financial repression, you have created a betting market. A betting market. And just to uh, fill in people who did not hear Jerome Powell yesterday, uh, you are throwing shade at his comment where he said, if you look at what's really been driving asset prices, really in the last couple of months, it isn't monetary policy. The connection between low interest rates and asset values is probably something that's not as tight as people think. Steen, given that we are in this betting market, do you think that this populist shift, this anger that you're talking about that seems to be a hallmark, whether in actuality in terms of who's doing the trading or at least in the sentiment on these chat rooms. How else will it be expressed in markets? In other words, is this going to be a pervasive feature that does affect where prices end up going? It does, and it already done it. Of course, you're all aware of a few hedge funds that's been in trouble. And if you look at the whole construction in the inside the fund management business of long short portfolios, <clears throat> if you have and attack the list of the most 50 most shortest stocks, you're also attacking the uh, nominal names that everyone has in the short portfolio of the big hedge fund. So we will see, and we saw yesterday, in particularly in the green transformation space, the energy space, that a lot of names came down 15, 20% inside the day, simply because the collateral value of the shorts blew up or the lag of value in the shorts blew up, and they mm. need to sell collateral against this, meaning that they had to sell the profit position. And I think, Lisa, it's very important to note that we had, in percentage term, the single biggest move in VIX yesterday we've ever seen. Not in nominal terms, but in, in, uh, in, in percentage terms, which is a clear indication. And for the record, if you look at the curve in the VIX futures, the indication of what is to come, we have seen that the front-end contract is now, uh, of course, aggressively being priced uh, relatively. Steen, part of your charm is unlike a lot of CIOs, you have massive trading experience of enjoying the bid walking away, the challenges a bid, and you can't find an ask out there right now. I want you to talk about what we're seeing, hedge funds short, retail, the guys on the couch, and I think they're way more sophisticated than people think. But I want you to talk about the cost to short. The big guys clear their short. Everybody else is reshorting GameStop right now. And the so-called borrow to short is immense. What does that signal to you? 
It signals that, you know, if there's one component of the market, which, and I agree with you, Tom, we have to give credit to these people in the retail space. Not only are they going after the short names where the vulnerability is because you have to deliver these stocks back to the owners and they can get called on that. So they have, you know, a counterparty risk. But they also using the optionality, the convexity of option, which translated into plain English means that they're getting a massive leverage of just buying the nearby calls. And don't forget, this is a generation of people, young people, who primarily probably came from the betting industry. In the betting industry, the probability on a bet is at best 50 minus the house. Now they are, they are aggregating their voices, their money in a game against the short interest, as you uh, allude to, with a game that says, you know, we are playing this like a lottery ticket. We can buy the calls forever and we will lose, as we always done in the betting, in the betting you know, 40, 50 percent once in a while. But as long as the, the gains outweigh that. So we have changed the dynamics. And I think for us all suits, as they call us, we need to realize that the game has changed and, and, yeah. and that and I, and I have have to go back to Fed because uh, sorry, Jonathan. Just one. Please uh, do. We have go. to go back to Fed. It is a repression market. We have the repression of the markets. We have no price discovery. Of course, we get to a betting situation. Well, let's add to that. For Chairman Powell, when's it really get on his radar, Steen? Because in the last 24 hours in that news conference, that was just a shrug of the shoulders. We got bigger things to worry about. And they do, and absolutely. And I think probably also we should get credit to Powell to then connecting it to the full employment mandate that he's trying to operate. He put it in the context that despite the fact we run a very low interest rate and we have, you know, on hold for at least into 24 in terms of changes to that interest rate, we still have 6 million people who are unemployed. So the market disagree with Powell on the fact that you can go back to a a model where you have full employment. And for the record, you know, if you ask any futurist, anyone who wants to look into the future, they all expect that by 2030 we'll have 25% people, maybe not unemployed, but deployed alternatively. So, so creating a model now that drives towards full employment, full capacity, <clears throat> Under the headlines of a technology and, 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 and of course, demographics going the other way, I think just makes up a huge policy mistakes uh, uh, incoming. Steen, I love what you said there about the conflation here of quantitative finance and literally Ed Thorpe-like betting over to people trying to play a game, as we heard from Vallier, the, hunted, the hunter being hunted as well. I want you to conflate Paul Wilmon of Imperial College, the great Nassim Taleb, and also what we heard from the legendary Ed Thorpe, which is, it's okay to take a loss. I know I'm going to take a loss, but I've got the upper hand right now. Explain that. Yeah, so, so it's really optionality. I mean, crypto, the crypto space is another example. So let's use crypto as an optionality on, on its thoughts and these comments. If, if you play the game of, of crypto, you don't even need to understand crypto. You don't need to understand stocks. If you are betting every time 5% of your wage, 5% of your total amount, and you have an optionality that says yet once in a while you get a 50, 100, 200 payback on that exact bet, then you will always be ahead because you can control the destruction of your capital relative to your earnings. So you have a very, very high optionality game in the market. And that optionality, of course, is being not only supported, but being extended in terms of guarantees, the length, the depth, by, by the Federal Reserve, who, of course, has a different agenda, but one of the unintended consequences being that to support that very optionality itself. Steen, 
Always great to catch up, sir. Steen Jakobsen, Saxo Bank, CIO. Steen, thank you very much. Shannon Cross writes blisteringly straightforward tech reports. They're wonderfully clear. I love when it's seven pages. It's actually seven pages and not filled with a lot of filler. She's with Cross at Research and joins us now. Shannon, off of Microsoft and off of Apple, let's just start with the big, big tech. What have you learned? Well, I mean, I think what we've learned is that certainly the consumer has been extremely resilient. Um, you know, iPhones were up 17% year yeah. over year. PC sales were very strong at at uh, Microsoft. Um, you know, and I think we've also learned that the cloud is, is a, a big focus. Um, services within Apple, which were up 24%, were driven partially by the cloud services they have. You know, obviously Azure was up 50%. So <laughs> right. Um, I think both of those trends are, are strong. Enterprise a little weaker, um, yeah. you know, or, or not a little weaker, but it remains it remains a little bit uh, sh- shakier, I would say. In, in the game of extrapolation, what is your conviction out two years or five years on these names? They're getting a pandemic pop. How do you recalibrate your conviction out two to five years? You know, I, I actually I, I remain really positive on both of these companies. I think you know Apple is is I mean they're. They have a billion iPhones out there um, in their installed base. They have 1.6 billion devices that people are utilizing. Their services continue to grow. Um, they're spending, you know, aggressively in R&D, which is continuing to support their product pipeline. You know, they came out with the, their AirPod Maxes. They're continuing to be sold out. Some of the, again, some of these products don't necessarily move the needle a lot, but in aggregate, aggregate they do. Um, for Microsoft, you know, I think they're, Azure is, is quickly becoming, you know, one of the, obviously, the top choices from a cloud perspective. Um, companies continue to shift to cloud services like Office 365. And, you know, the interesting thing about PCs is that where, I don't know, a few years ago everybody said they were dead and everybody was going to go to a tablet. Now the PC companies are all talking about one PC per person, not one PC per household. So there's still a long ways to go in terms of uh, PC adoption and penetration. Shannon, can we just take a step back? The shares are lower today because they didn't provide a forecast, and yet they had a revenue for the quarter of more than $100 billion, surpassing revenues for full years as recently as 2011. And people are selling the shares because they don't have visibility in the near term that they're going to absolutely crush it the same way that they have. There is a question of what they have to do with their money, with all of that cash, in order to keep crushing it at a time when Facebook views Apple as potentially its biggest competitor and Volkswagen views Apple as its biggest competitor with iMessage and the Apple car, respectively. Is Apple investing its cash in enterprises that will lead it to that dominance in those particular industries in a different way than it is now? Well, I, I, look, I think Apple's running the playbook they've been running for several years, and it's clearly worked very well. So I don't think they need to go and buy something, um, you know, and be aggressive from an acquisition standpoint. You know, you look at their, their R&D spend, it's, it's significant. You know, we hear chatter about autos. You know, they're, they're obviously investing heavily in healthcare. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that they need to really change what they're doing. I mean, you know, if you look at the trajectory of the revenue, you know, last year they did 274 billion, and, and this year we have them doing 332 billion. Um, the numbers are staggering. I still remember when they gave us a, uh, a model that said, you know, we're going to do eight to 12 billion um, over the next few years annually. So uh, it's working. 
Um, and, you know, I think that they will come out with, they've always said they will come out with products when they're ready to release them and they're the best product out there. They weren't the first product on PCs. They weren't the first product on iPods. They weren't the first product on tablets. And yet they've come out, and, and iPhones, I, I would say, you, you can make the argument there. They were out first with, with the product they had. But, you know, they've continued to take significant share and become dominant leaders in the categories. And I think we will see that again in some of these other products. But it will take some time. Shannon, we've got to go. There's an airline going to space. Shannon Cross, Cross Research CEO and analyst. The gains and losses are not 50-50. You can have a you can have 20% or 8% or 7% of the people capture the gain. And Lisa, to your point, everybody else loses money on the way out. Anders Sheet studied this at Brown University. We're going to get right to him. Futures negative 13. The VIX 33. Anders Sheets, let's open up, and I don't want to get you in trouble with Mr. Gorman. You're really good at this mathematics. Your thoughts on this moment is the hedge funds get clobbered. Well, I think it's important to, to separate that there are a few overlapping storylines in this market. Please. There's a storyline around the strength of the recovery and, and will there be issues or delays with the rollout of the vaccine. And then I think there's a separate discussion now around the concentration of positioning, which I think has been a discussion now for some time. I think we've this has been a, a very unequal market for, for years, really, with, with very uneven valuations across sectors, across styles and very uneven positioning among active investors to try to take advantage of that. And so I, I think it's important to separate those things out. And, and ultimately, you know, in, in my view, the, the macroeconomic picture still looks good. We at Morgan Stanley are still very constructive on the growth backdrop. And that you know, makes, makes us think that this is a more modest adjustment rather than some larger um, uh, challenge for the market. Bear with me here, Andrew. I want to think this out with you live on air. I just wonder if the conversations that you and I have been having for the best part of the decade need to change. We see market moves. We talk about the stories that are driving those moves. We often draw a line back to the fundamentals, the outlook, the story, so to speak. And I just wonder sometimes at the moment, particularly I think back to late August, early September, that maybe it's just this explosion in short-dated call options and it's the tail wagging the dog and we all sit around trying to come up with these fundamental reasons for any given move in, in markets because that's what we've done for decades. But I wonder, Andrew, whether we just need to change our approach in the way we actually consider what's happening around us and the way we talk about the price action. Yeah, look, I, I think that's a very good point. And I think this is a case where, where more than one thing can be true. I, I think it can be true that you're seeing uh, an unusually large amount of, of retail investor activity, of, of call options activity, that you're seeing you know, an unusually amount of large amount of liquidity that, that's going into the market. And yet, you know, viewed, I think, from, from other lenses, the market is behaving and has been behaving for some time, I think, in a very rational, fundamental way. I, you know, my, my favorite example is if you look over the last decade, you know, the market that's per performed the best by far has been the S&P 500, which has had the best earnings growth by far of, of the international markets. And so it's not the case that, you know, the S&P is only up because you know, rates are low or the Fed is doing QE, the, the S&P has had significantly superior earnings growth to, to those other major markets. So I, I think it's a case of kind of both things can, can be true. You can have shifts in market behavior. You can have, um, uh, you know, uh, changing patterns of behavior. But I do think overall those, those broader fundamental trends remain intact and remain important. 
Andrew, I love that you started by talking about the different narratives going at the same time. It is a very difficult market to sum up in one word. One of the narratives is the concentration of markets, and we're seeing this both on a specific stock basis as well on, uh, as a consensus view perspective as well. For example, coming into the year, the weaker dollar call was very much consensus. The higher rate call was very much consensus. Both of those have been turned on their heads in the first few weeks of 2021. How important is it to look at the concentration of positioning and move against that in order to avoid such uh, violent repositioning going forward? Yeah, I, I think this is a, a really important point. And again, I, I think a theme that, that interestingly varies across markets. I think we find there are some views where I think we're in the consensus. We, like a lot of people, think you know, interest rates in the U.S. go higher. There's some areas where I think we're, we're uh, out of the consensus or think somewhat differently. We're, we're not in that weak dollar uh, camp. Um, we, we think that the equally weighted S&P 500 will outperform the S&P 500, i.e. you'll see a broadening of the market and, and underperformance of some of those larger, um, those larger weighted stocks, as, as often happens coming, coming out of a recession. And, and again, I think if you look at some of the recent price action, you know, again, I think this is, you know, an interesting thing to, uh, to, to uh, an interesting or important way to diagnose what's going on it is, is what's leading the market yeah. the, the most widely held stocks or is it the more economically uh, uh, sensitive ones? Andrew, we're all students of the mop-up books on all these crises. I think of Stanley Fisher's classic book on 1998. Andrew Sheets, in the derivative space, whether notional or the small amount of actually derivatives issued, traded, however you want to phrase it. What are the shadows out there? For a guy like you, what are the unknowns or the mysteries of the derivative space right now? So, so I think this is, this is quite fascinating, actually, because even you know, a week ago or two weeks ago when things seemed you know, much calmer, the, the equity options market was still expecting quite a bit of volatility at the overall index level and was quite worried about a, a larger drawdown, right? That, that skew uh, was, was, was historically very steep. And so I, I don't think this is a case where you could say the market was completely blindsided. There was, you know, an elevated amount of uncertainty expected by the options market. And then what we saw yesterday was an even larger adjustment of that. You had a, a, a much larger move in the VIX um, than you did versus credit yep. or, or other asset classes. So, and, and I think that also speaks to the positioning nature of it, that this has, I think, the hallmarks of a VAR shock or a kind of a positioning shock more so than a, than a real economic uh, shift in view. Well put, Andrew. Interesting take. Andrew Sheets there of Morgan Stanley. Andrew, great to catch up, sir. I was uh, at one of my fancy breakfasts that I have where I hold court yesterday with the entourage, and I got a phone call. It's from Pharaoh, so I had to take it, of course. And he's screaming at me, Tom, forget about all these pundits. Get us a rocket scientist. So we came close. We've had a wonderful set of conversations. Mr. Gartman on the history of the moment. Steen Jacobson, I thought, was lights out at Saxel Bank. And now James Angel. He is at Georgetown. Jim Angel. And what's so important here is he is a rocket scientist. He's engineering out of Caltech. His brilliance in mathematics at Berkeley, among others. And we're thrilled that the finance professor could join us this morning. I've got to go, Jim, right away to you with a Bloomberg down the hallway at Georgetown about whether you're participating in this. Have you enjoyed being long or short GameStop? Well, I was long until yesterday, but when the uh, stock went crazy, I decided to go short just a little bit, although I see that it has uh, doubled overnight. 
So I've proven to myself, once again, I am a lousy trader. Now, we need a booker here on surveillance. So if they throw you out the door at Georgetown, you got a job up here. Jim Angel, if that's the, if that's the reality, are you worried that the people on the couches are dumb or are they as sophisticated as you are? Um, I'm sure they're more sophisticated than me, that's for sure. But, uh, I mean, what we have here is a confluence of events. You know, we have <clears throat> the mother of all short squeezes going on. You know, at the same time, we have a retail herd. But I'm also hearing that hedge funds are jumping on board. As one hedgie told me, he said, hey, you know, when the herd moves through the gate, get on a cow. So I think what we're seeing is this move is being amplified by other hedge funds that are jumping on board. They smell the blood in the water. They can see that some that shorts are overexposed and they're playing a game of musical chairs to ride it until it turns. Well, but Professor Angel, this goes to a broader issue here, which is the question of democratizing the market, allowing smaller traders to participate in a rally that has been unprecedented and phenomenal in equities fueled by policies versus protecting the individual investor from institutional investors who are manipulating the herds to do their bidding, right? And that's sort of the question. How do you distinguish one from the other? It's very hard. There's no easy way. Personally, I think investors should have the right to invest in anything they want. So I'm very leery about people who want to protect people from themselves. You're leery of people uh, protecting uh, people from their themselves. In other words, you think that there is nothing wrong with what's currently going on, and you disagree with Senator Warren in saying that the SEC regulators do your job, get involved, because there is nothing for them to do. This is just markets the way that they ought to be running. Is that correct? Uh, not completely. There are things that regulators should be doing. You know, they should be investigating what's going on, because we see a stock price that is clearly disconnected from reality. And who's driving it? Now is a test of the new consolidated audit trail. It's not fully up and running, but it's partially running. Let's see if it's giving us good data. Also, what's causing this short squeeze? This is not the first time we've seen these kind of spikes in prices. And let's face it, an overpriced stock is nobody's friend. When the market or a single stock is overpriced, all you're doing is locking in future losses for investors when that stock comes back to its proper level. So we don't... You know, super high prices are not good for anybody. Now, the SEC should also be looking at imperfections in the market that are driving the short squeeze. I think we need improvements in the Customer Protection Rule, 15C3-3. I think we also need to upgrade Rule 204 on Regulation SHO. These are things that I think can be done to improve customer protection and smooth out some of the wrinkles that are leading to these kind of price spikes. James, terrifically smart, and we appreciate your time, sir. Please come back soon, Professor. James Angel there of Georgetown. Frederick Mishkin came out of New York City, studied under Stan Fisher at uh, MIT, and went on to a sterling academic set at Columbia University. Ahmad has passed as a governor of the Federal Reserve System, and we are thrilled on our new policy that Rick Mishkin could join us this morning. Rick, I've got a two-hour interview ahead of me with you, and I don't have the time for it as well. Do you see the construction of possible 
policy in Washington, or is it going to be gridlock as we've known? I think they're going to get some things done, but I think that uh, uh, there's going to be issues on, on some parts of what uh, the Biden administration wants. So I think what they definitely will do, uh, and I think do it quickly, is to get funding for uh, uh, more vaccinations, better testing, and so forth. Uh, I, I agree with Jay Powell on this, which is what's happening in the economy, it's, it's really all about the COVID. That's the deal, that, uh, that if we get COVID under control quickly, the economy will come back and actually can come back fairly strongly because of all the pent up saving. And, uh, uh, you know, me and many others, the day that I can start traveling, man, I'm, I'm out there. Uh, I want to spend some money. I'd like to go out to restaurants uh, that uh, 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 right now I'm living the dream and uh, I want to live a much better dream in terms of uh, after COVID gets more under control. And I think that's really the key. So I think that we are going to get a uh, uh, quick progress on that. Where it will become more complicated will be on some other elements of, uh, of, of this bill. I do think we're going to have some uh, uh, expansionary fiscal policy. Some checks will get sent out. But there are other elements of that uh, legislation that may not get passed, particularly minimum wage and so forth. So we'll have to see. I think that's one of the key issues for the Federal Reserve and for the economy, which is, uh, is the partnership in Washington going to be a problem or not? Uh, remarkably, it wasn't when the pandemic first occurred. What was extraordinary, within two weeks, of the pandemic being declared, we had a $2 trillion bill from Congress. Uh, and it wasn't any less partisan then it is, than it is now. So I'm actually optimistic that, that, uh, that they'll do reasonable uh, uh, things on this regard. But I think the real key issue is gonna be, uh, how quickly do we get the vaccine out? Uh, the Biden administration says by the end of the summer, we may have everybody vaccinated. That'd be good news if it happens. Uh, then there's this issue of the variants. How effective will the vaccine be against the variants? Will, we have to have new shots in order to deal with some of these variants. So I think all of this is is basically uh, uh, the key to what's going to happen to the economy. It's, it dominates everything else. Yeah. And I think that that's why the Fed is basically uh, in a holding pattern. They're not going to tighten. They're not going to uh, depart from their expansionary policy regime that they've set in place until there's really good information that COVID starts to get under control. And we don't have that yet. So that's why I think they're taking the position that they're in and why we're all waiting or hopefully better times, but we don't know. Rick, allow me to jump in just quickly. You mentioned the speed, the pace of the snapback, the recovery. What is it about the nature of this specific shock that dictates the snapback, the speed at which we recover? Okay, so what's, what's actually really unique about this, uh, this recession, the COVID recession, uh, is uh, not that we have a sharp downturn in, in, uh, in the economy, but that this is actually a case of where, uh, what we call a supply shock, uh, the fact that uh, that basically uh, there's problems in terms of production, production of certain types of goods, particularly things like that are service type industry, which involve one to one contact. The supply shock is driving demand. So, indeed, the, the dominant thing is that we, we, people aren't spending, but it's not because of of, uh, of, of uh, tightening monetary policy or something else. It's because of the fact that the covid actually causes uh, people not to be able to spend. So once you release that, once you get people back able to spend again, they've been doing a lot of saving. They're going to they're going to start spending and probably spending very strongly, which will bring the economy back fairly quickly. The well, problem is until people feel comfortable uh, with going and traveling, getting on an airplane, they feel comfortable with going inside a restaurant uh, and so forth. This is going to actually uh, uh, be key to what happens. So I've just been vaccinated. So uh, once the vac, I get the second uh, dose. 
I'm going to be much more willing to go out and, and, uh, and travel, for example. When that happens to everybody, that's going to be a big thing to affect their demand. So it's, it's unique because what's happening on, on the, what we call the supply side is actually driving demand, uh, which is a very unusual situation, uh, almost unique to this recession, because we really never had a pandemic recession before, at least in the modern era. Well, congratulations on getting uh, vaccinated. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm free, free at last. <laughs> I know that's, uh, I, I look forward to that day. There is a question though, in the meantime, when people are sitting at home looking for something to do, they're trading stocks, and we've been talking about that all morning. Uh, and it's not just individuals, it's also institutions who are uh, playing around with all of this money that has washed in. Jay Powell yesterday said, if you look at what's really been driving asset prices really in the last couple of months, it isn't monetary policy. The connection between low interest rates and asset values is probably something that's not as tight as people think. Is that true? I think in general, uh, when you look at, at the data over a long period of time, uh, that's basically true. Uh, there is an issue that there could be an interaction in terms of uh, 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 expansionary policy and uh, uh, what people call irrational exuberance. Uh, uh, and uh, so there is always a concern about that. I actually think that people uh, overdo their focus on the stock market as, as, uh, as driving things. In fact, bubbles in the stock market per se are, and when they burst, are not really the problem uh, for the economy. They, they can be dealt with. It's when it involves the credit, credit, credit markets. Uh, and, uh, and that's what, what the, the thing that, that caused the problem in terms of the last uh, global financial crisis was not the stock market, not, not the, the, the fact that there were changes in asset prices per se. It was the fact that when that happened, it really affected uh, the credit markets that caused them to seize up. That's not where we are right now. So I think that people focus on, on, on the market. Uh, you know, people can lose money. They can do stupid things. We can have bubbles. There are crazy things like what's mm -hmm. happening in GameStop and so forth. Uh, uh, but that actually very rarely right. has a, a major effect in the economy unless it, it interacts with the credit markets, which I don't think is what we're seeing right now. Rick Mishkin, I don't want to go all Sandy Grossman, Joe Stiglitz on you, but let's go. It's a Columbia moment here. And I want to talk about the informations out there. Do we have too much information visible now, or are we still drowning out in the equity markets and in all our long short and all the silliness, or is it still information we can't see? Are we drowning in visible information from all this trading volume? I don't think we're drowning in invisible information, but there is an issue that, uh, that you know, the nature of markets is that sometimes people go a little bit crazy. I mean, that's just... Uh, 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 the history of, of financial markets. It was uh, Charlie Kindleberg was one of my professors, yeah. delightful professor, by the way, uh, quite a character uh, in his book, Pan uh, Man Panics, Manias and Crashes. Uh, this is just what what, uh, what happens. People sometimes get a little mutsy. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you actually want central banks to be there to make sure that if there's a, 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 a people get nutsy, that central banks can actually come in to basically stabilize the situation if bad things happen. And and actually, this is what the Fed has been able to do uh, very successfully, particularly extremely successful in this COVID crisis. Uh, that uh, one of the things that people don't realize how lucky we are that, that COVID didn't occur 15 years ago before the last financial crisis. Right. Because it took 18 months for the Fed to figure out what to do. Uh, in this case, it did, they did it in two weeks. Okay, but Rick, and that's extremely important in terms of 
of the of the economy doing much better than it otherwise would have. Rick, Michigan, just because of time, this is so, so, so important. And I want to move from Kindleberger over to Hyman Minsky, who darkened the door at Columbia, I believe, as well. Would you suggest that the distortions in derivatives, in calls, in puts, in a long-short hedge fund battle could be something our central bank will have to focus on down the road? Again, I think that the issue is what Hyman Minsky was talking about was these credit cycles. That's really what we have to worry about is these, these big booms in credit that crash. That's where we get into real trouble. Other bubbles uh, 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 typically are not nearly as important if they cover the commodities market. Uh, they do create some losses, but, uh, but think about the following, that during the, uh, in the precursor to the global financial crisis, there basically were losses about 500 billion in the subprime market that basically triggered the whole thing. Uh, that, so that was a credit market distortion which spread. It, it, if the stock market moves 1% uh, or just a couple of percent, that's way more than the $500 billion. So stock market moves all the time and yet it doesn't create these kind of problems. It's really when it's the credit markets that get it, get problem. It's bubbles in the credit markets that we have to worry about, not bubbles in asset markets per se, although sometimes they do occur at the same time, and that's when you get into real trouble. And that's it where I, I think that, uh, that uh, we're, we're, I have less concern now uh, than I did, for example, during the global financial crisis, where the bubbles really spread very much into the credit markets, and that's where we, we were uh, in deep trouble. Rick, we'll have to continue this conversation on a credit market another time. Rick, fantastic to catch up. Rick Mishkin there of Columbia University. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.